As we begin our Bible study today, I want to theorize with you about the post-imperial review release of the Apostle Paul. This is what we know chronologically so far. We know that Paul arrived in Rome under Roman detention in the early spring of 61. Uh, We also know that Dr. Luke says at the end of the book of Acts that Paul spent two full years at Rome teaching as he awaited his imperial review. So that brings us into the spring of 63. Now, when Paul wrote uh, his Philemon letter and his Colossian letter, as well as the Philippian letter before that, he was already anticipating that he would soon be released and would want to travel their direction. So I believe that it is likely that the Apostle Paul was released from detention sometime in the later spring, maybe the very early summer of 63. So he got his chance to speak to the emperor. I'm sure he tried to evangelize him. Um, The emperor was a young man, uh, and uh, all historical evidence seems to indicate he would, would not have been interested in responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He certainly did not uh, live a uh, Christian life uh, in his later, um, his later reign. So I believe the Apostle Paul probably left Rome, probably got on a ship, and headed back to the region uh, where he had spent several years ministering before he was arrested at Jerusalem and detained for the last four years. Uh, I'm guessing that he either dispatched Titus or dropped Titus off at the island of Crete with instructions to work with any Christians that were already there and to establish congregations with appropriate leadership. Uh, The Apostle Paul then would have gone on to Ephesus, I think, as his first landfall in Asia of the Romans, and uh, he would have from there gone uh, eastward along the Roman road to Colossae, where uh, Philemon was located, because Paul had said, keep a room ready for me, uh, where Onesimus had been returned to, and where Paul wanted to spend a little bit of time following up on those issues. Now, I think it's possible that after a brief visit there, Paul may have have gone uh, along the Roman road counterclockwise uh, through Asia province, through the uh, seven cities of the churches of Asia uh, that are mentioned in the book of Revelation, and may have arrived back at Ephesus, where he leaves Timothy. And uh, then Paul goes up into Macedonia, where we already know he wanted to come back and visit the Philippians. And I'm sure he didn't just simply go to their town and nowhere else. 
I imagine he hit several of the towns in Macedonia. It was during that time, probably in the later portion of 63, that the Apostle Paul writes back to Timothy and uh, gives him follow-up instructions as to how he should be ministering to the church at Ephesus and, by extension, the churches of Asia. When Paul wrote that letter, he was thinking about possibly coming back to Ephesus. But I believe as time passed in 63, Paul decided to head westward across the land until he came to uh, Elycrium, which is on the east side of this long peninsula that ends in uh, the, uh, the Greek area, and uh, ended up at a city called Neapolis. And there, Paul writes another letter, this time to Titus, and instructs Titus uh, that he's going, he lets Titus know, I'm going to winter at Neapolis. I want you to come and join me if at all possible. And so I believe that he did exactly that. I believe he wintered in Neapolis uh, between 63 going into 64 with the intention of taking off to Spain, as he's expressed previously wanting to do. And so I believe that Paul probably spent uh, 64 and possibly some of 65 in Spain. Uh, And then we have the Great Roman Fire of 64, which then generates the Neronian persecution of Christians in the later part of 64 going into 65. And I believe the Apostle Paul probably came back to uh, the region of Ephesus and other places right around 65, in the middle of that Neronian persecution. And that's where he will be arrested, carted off to uh, Rome, and uh, he will write his final letter to Timothy from there. That'll be Second Timothy. And then Paul will be executed uh, at Rome, just as the Apostle Peter had been executed shortly before that at Rome. So that's my post-imperial um, review itinerary that I'm going to work with uh, as we look over the next three writings of the Apostle Paul. So with no further ado, let's open to 1 Timothy and see what the Apostle Paul had to say to his young protege who had been left at Ephesus. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. So he reminds Timothy, I'm in this slot as an apostle to the Gentiles because that's where God the Father wants me and that's where Jesus the Son wants me. Uh, Remember, Paul makes a big deal out of the fact that he was not appointed to this position by human beings. He didn't get his gospel from the apostles of the Lamb. 
He got his gospel straight from Jesus. His commission came straight from Jesus. Verse 2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. So he thinks of Timothy as his adopted son. And uh, this is where we have this impression that Timothy, um, having come into contact with uh, Paul uh, during Paul's uh, second missionary journey, uh, was converted and eventually uh, becomes Paul's uh, young companion, uh, traveling with him, learning the ropes of ministry, and then eventually being trusted uh, with ministry at Ephesus, for example. Uh, then we have the typical uh, Paul opening, grace, mercy, that's a new one, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So grace and peace, those are the common ways that Gentiles and Jews uh, respectively open their letters, but in Christian circles, of course, those are all tied in with Jesus. Uh, and then the mercy sandwiched in between. Uh, that's what we get from the grace and the peace of God. Uh, verse number three. Now it gets right to the main point. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So Timothy is acting as a troubleshooter. Timothy is acting as a protector of the faith in the church that's already been well-established at Ephesus. And Paul is not being generic here. He already knows there are troublemakers. He already knows that there are false teachers causing trouble for the church at Ephesus. Remember, Paul had warned the Ephesian elders when he saw them before going off to Jerusalem. I know that even from among your own number, there will arise false teachers. So Timothy is Paul's choice for keeping a tight rein uh, on this congregation uh, so that these false teachers don't take the church sideways. Verse 4, nor to devote themselves to myths. Uh, the word myths here, in my mind at least, and I think probably several of yours, brings to mind uh, the Greek and the Roman mythologies. And that's not necessarily what he has in mind. Uh, the word myths is, it's actually a Greek word, and it just means fictions, uh, made-up stories. Uh, so there are some of these false teachers that are making stuff up as they go along. Uh, and some of them are probably made-up stories about Jesus. So not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, uh, that uh, would be very Jewish. Uh, some of the uh, Jewish false teachers made a big deal out of who they were related to, and uh, that's not helpful. And so Paul says, you got to watch out for that too, Timothy. And by the way, remember, Timothy is half Jewish. His dad is Gentile, but his mom and his grandma, lovely Jewish ladies who raised him in the faith. Um, dad, of course, did not have uh, him circumcised when he was a kid. Uh, but Paul 
when he took the uh, older teenaged uh, Timothy under his wing, did circumcise him, not because it was a matter of salvation, but because it allowed Timothy to be fully accepted in, gen- in uh, Jewish circles then. And uh, that was important for Timothy to be able to move freely in both worlds. Uh, so he says, don't devote, they devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So he's basically saying these sorts of focuses on fiction stories, and the Jewish people also had fiction stories that they liked to talk about, um, and on these genealogies that supposedly made certain people more authoritative than others, says all that does is distract from the real thing that needs to be taken care of in the church, and that is keeping the gospel moving forward, keeping it whole, keeping it healthy, keeping the people growing uh, in relationship with God and with one another. And all that is by faith. And this is definitely something that we in the church today uh, need to pay attention to. There are lessons throughout this pastoral letter uh, that we can learn. And one of them is don't let the people in the church get taken off track. Help them stay focused on Jesus. Uh, Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart. So Paul says, my focus for you is love. This is the agape love. It's the love that looks out for other people. Uh, It's the love that God has for us and which we need to have for everybody else. So that should be the focus, love that comes out of this pure heart. Uh, comes out of a heart that is um, not self-centered, but rather cares about other people. Uh, And it also has a good conscience. That's what he's also going for. Uh, Conscience is where you make choices, where you do your thinking, and you want that to be good. Uh, And a sincere faith, a real faith, trust of God. Uh, Now, the reason why... Paul says, this is my aim, is because there are bad things happening from the other side. Verse 6, certain persons, by swerving from these, so they haven't been loving, they haven't had a good conscience, they haven't been sincere in their faith, they have swerved from them, they have wandered away into vain discussion, empty worthless discussion. So they are way off base. They are way off track. Verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law. Oh, wait a second here. You mean we're back to the Judaizers again? Yes, we're back to the Judaizers again. Uh, As I've been teaching you this time through quite a bit, it would appear that these guys were just constantly causing trouble in the church and uh, especially wherever it was that Paul was doing his work. And so Paul has to continually warn against these troublemakers that want to force Gentiles to become Jewish in order to be saved. You would have thought that that was fixed back in Acts chapter 15, uh, back in the time of 47, 
this is probably 60, uh, 64 maybe, 63, 64 when Paul's writing this, uh, and it's still not totally fixed. The Judaizers are still causing trouble. Uh, it says they are without understanding either of what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, this makes me suspect something that, again, it's just speculation, but a possibility. When the Judaizing movement first began, we know who they were. They were Pharisees who came into faith of Jesus Christ. They're at Jerusalem. They're in Judea. And they brought with them this Pharisaic mindset that we have to do things according to the traditional understanding of the law by the rabbis. So when those first Judaizers started having, um, causing the trouble, they were saying these Gentiles have to be circumcised, and they have to be told they must keep the law of Moses according to the Pharisaic traditions. So that was the original Judaizers. But somewhere along the way, you end up with Gentile believers in Jesus who then take on the Judaizing cause. And so they don't really understand the law all that well because they're not Jewish, but they still make these confident assertions about it as if they know it. And so I suspect that that is the group that Paul is talking about there at the end of verse number 7. They are a bunch of uh, Gentiles who are kind of uh, Pharisee wannabes forcing other Gentiles uh, back into the law. And that was just totally inappropriate. Verse 8, Paul now explains. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, that is, in an appropriate fashion. Now, what does he mean by that? Verse 9, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, that is, the people who are doing things fairly, but for the lawless and disobedient. So, the law was intended to control bad behavior by threat of force. We've talked about this before. This is, a, this is a Jewish understanding of the law. When Moses went to Egypt at God's command and brought the Israelis out, he was bringing out a bunch of people that had been compromised by 400 plus years in Egypt, where they'd picked up an awful lot of bad habits, bad attitudes, bad history. And so the law was needed to bring that under control, to bring that in check. Because if, if it didn't get fixed, the Israelis would implode as a culture long before the Messiah could come into the world, uh, um, uh, along the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, uh, David, that line. Uh, as Paul put it in his Galatian letter, 
the law was like a pedagogos, a child-leading slave or servant of the house, uh, where the master gives the pedagogos the assignment, take my son to the teacher. And if he misbehaves along the way, feel free to give him a few uh, whacks with the paddle. So the law was the babysitter, if you would, or the, 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 the slave leading uh, a, a sometimes disobedient child to the teacher. And so the law spanked Israel along the way from time to time until finally the Messiah came on the lo- along. And once they were handed over to him, the law's job was done. And so that is the same thing that Paul is, is reinforcing here in the teaching. He says, the law is a good thing as long as you use it for the purpose that it had. And that is, it's not there for people who are behaving themselves. It's there for people who aren't behaving themselves, to make them behave themselves. So let's read that again. Verse 8, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners. So those are people misbehaving for the unholy and profane, people with bad attitudes, bad lifestyles, for those who strike their fathers and mothers. See, the law would say, knock that nonsense off. You're supposed to be showing honor to your mother and father, not disrespect and abuse. Uh, He says, it's for murderers. What are murderers other than people misbehaving? They're killing somebody made in the image of God just because it it suits their own purposes. They're mad at those that person. They that person has something that they want. That's it. So the law is used to bring those people into check. Verse 10. The sexually immoral. That's a catch-all term for anything outside of God's design for marriage. One man, one woman, together for a lifetime. The law was supposed to bring that that element, those people misbehaving in that way, back into check. Uh, Then a little subdivision of that, men who practice homosexuality. Homosexuality is most certainly a deviation, a departure from God's design. One man, one woman, together for a lifetime. Uh, and um, the law was there to bring that sort of lifestyle into check. Uh, Enslavers, that is, kidnappers, people who take other people's freedom away from them and sell them. Uh, The things that were going on uh, in early American colonial history, absolutely horrendous how people were being kidnapped and put into that. Liars, uh, so people who can't, won't tell the truth. Perjurers, that's in a court of law. And whatever else is contrary to sound or healthy doctrine. Uh, doctrine is a fancy word for teaching. 
from Scripture. And so Paul says, yeah, these Judaizer types, these guys that want to be teachers of the law, but they don't really understand the law, here's the reality. The law had a purpose. It was to bring Israel in particular under a form of control that will keep them from imploding until the Messiah came on the scene. And then, once the gospel is there, that's where the focus should be now. Verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So a little little bit of um, uh, issue, apparently, of, of Judaizing still going on at Ephesus. And so Paul says, Timothy... You need to take care of that. You know it. You're you're a Jewish person. You've got Jewish training from your mom and grandma. You know that these people have got to quit trying to Judaize Gentiles. Instead, they need to help them be followers of Jesus, not followers of you know oral tradition uh, about Moses' law. Verse number 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful appointing me to this service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and an insolent opponent. So he used to need the law on top of him, didn't he? Because he was misbehaving. He thought he was doing okay, but the reality was he wasn't. But he says, I thank the Lord that even though I was misbehaving, once Jesus saved me, he turned me around in such a way that he could actually use me to do his work. He says, I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Uh, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Now, that's how he feels about it. He is most certainly not the worst human being that has ever lived. But in his mind was, I was a bad guy And then Jesus saved me, and now he's using me. I receive mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So he says, I'm a great example of what God can do. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. See you tomorrow when we come back into the Word.